Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you can see and hear for the activity in the room that Emmaus Kids is dismissed to their classes. So if you're a parent and you need confirmation that that's what's happening, uh, your kids can go to their class at this time. Well, this morning we begin a new sermon series. And any time we start a new series, I really look forward to it. But I've been especially looking forward to this one because in a way, this series is going to prove to be different. It's not the kind of series we typically do here at Emmaus. Of course, that's not to diminish any other series we've done. Every series we do here at Emmaus is important. But this one is of special importance. Because this one, this series we're going to do today, we're going to start today, is going to be definitive. It's definitive because what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to set a course for the future of Emmaus. We're going to do that by asking and answering a very simple, straightforward question. What is Emmaus all about? What is this church? What are we all about? Since the start of the new year, the elders of Emmaus have been praying over this question. We've been discussing it. We've been giving it a lot of time and attention and thought. And in that process, what God has impressed upon us is that Emmaus Church needs to be about three things. Now, just to be clear about something, this does not mean that our mission as a church is changing. Our mission is still to declare and display the gospel of Jesus. That's the reason we exist. That's why we're here. But when it comes to how we do that mission, when it comes to how we declare and display the gospel, the elders have come to realize that there are three things that need to define us. Those three things are creed, community, and commission. Creed, community, commission. As we look to the future, it is our firm conviction as your elders that these three things will come to bring, uh, bring into greater focus who we are as a church. And so this morning, I have the privilege of sharing with you about the first of these three things. Today, we're going to talk about our creed. Now, for many of us, we didn't grow up in a church where the, the word creed was used a lot. Maybe when you think of creed, you think of, uh, of a certain band that you regret liking in the early 2000s. But the word creed comes from the Latin, a Latin word which simply means belief. It means belief. So when we use the word creed here at Emmaus, what we're talking about is what we believe. You actually witnessed this a moment ago when we said the Nicene Creed together. How does that creed begin? It begins with two words. We believe. And so when we talk about our creed here at Emmaus, 
When we speak of what it is that we believe, I would summarize it this way. I would say, we believe in sound doctrine. Meaning we believe doctrine that is revealed to us in the scriptures. We believe in doctrine that is historical and orthodox. We believe in doctrine that is in keeping with this gospel that we declare and display together. But not only do we believe in sound doctrine, we also prioritize it. In fact, that's going to be the big idea of the sermon today. That we prioritize what we believe. If you know anything about Emmaus, you know that this is one of the things that is distinctive about us. One of the things that is fundamental to the identity of this church. That we prioritize what we believe. Now, for many of you, this gets you fired up. Because this is what drew you to Emmaus in the first place. You love the fact that when you come to church on Sunday morning, you're going to get meat, not milk. You're going to hear songs and prayers and sermons that are chock full of sound doctrine. For others, though, maybe that's not quite as exciting. Maybe there's someone here this morning who is not entirely convinced that any church, let alone this church, should be prioritizing sound doctrine. Maybe in your mind, doctrine is more for bookish types. Maybe you think it's for those who lock themselves away in an ivory tower to contemplate things that really have little to no relevance for for real world concerns. Or maybe, just maybe, you think the problem is actually worse than that. Perhaps your impression of Christians who care about doctrine is that they have a reputation for making a mess of the church. You've seen the social media dust-ups. You've seen the church splits and denominational disputes, and it has all left you asking the question, wouldn't it be better to just lay this sound doctrine thing to rest? Wouldn't Wouldn't it be better for us to just hang this up for a while? This morning, I hope to persuade you that the answer to that question is no. It would not be better. On the contrary, it is in the church's best interest to prioritize sound doctrine. And more than that, I want you to see that doctrine is not just for bookish types. It's not just for professional theologians. No, doctrine, sound doctrine, is for the whole church. It's for all of us. Let me briefly give you three very good reasons why we prioritize sound doctrine. In a moment, we'll read our text together. But before we do, allow me to share these three very good reasons with you. Reason number one, we care about truth. We care about truth. In a world where lies abound left and right, Christians should stand out as people of the truth. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that the truth will set you free. In fact, in fact, Jesus himself claims that he is the truth. What does he say in John 14, 6? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
So if Jesus claims that he is the truth and we follow Jesus, then it stands to reason that we ought to be people who care deeply, deeply about what is true. That leads me to the second reason I want to mention. We want to avoid heresy. This is a very good reason to care about sound doctrine. Because prioritizing what we believe fortifies us against false teachers. The book of Jude tells us to do this. It says, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul actually tells us that this can be a mark of Christian maturity. That those who are maturing in the knowledge of God are no longer tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of false teaching. In fact, the very point that Paul's making when he says this is that sound doctrine is a means by which the church attains to the unity of the faith. And really, that's the third good reason to prioritize sound doctrine. We desire unity. Now, this one might surprise you because, like I said, doctrine often has a reputation for being divisive. But it's important that we understand that one of the purposes of sound doctrine is to protect and, and to promote and to produce unity. You see, every organization, every institution, every community has a creed, a body of doctrines that you must believe and affirm in order to be part. And the church of Jesus Christ is no exception. Let me refer you back to the Nicene Creed. When we said that creed together just moments ago, it united the people in this room. That was a moment of profound unity. That's the effect that the creed had on us. Our many voices, our many individual voices became one voice and we declared what it is that we believe. But not only did that creed unite us to the people in this room, it also united us to the wider church. As we said that creed together, it united us to our brothers and sisters around the globe. It united us to the church across time and space. Listen, friends, did you know that on a given Sunday, more than one billion, that's billion with a B, one billion Christians across this globe will gather with other Christians to say the Nicene Creed? Today, you were one of them. So was I. So, we care about the truth, we want to avoid heresy, and we desire unity. These are three very good reasons to prioritize sound doctrine, and yet, none of them are the ultimate reason. They're good, yes, but they are not ultimate. Believe it or not, there is an even bigger reason to prioritize sound doctrine. There's an, an even bigger reason why doctrine matters for Emmaus. I want to invite you to turn with me to the letter of 1 John. We'll be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. In these verses, John is addressing something that we actually just talked about. One of the reasons this, this letter was written was to combat heresy. 
John is pushing back on false teaching which denied that Jesus is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. So let's look at what he says. Read with me starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is the word of the Lord. Three realities. Three realities in this text lead us toward the ultimate reason why sound doctrine matters for the whole church. The first of these three realities is the reality of what we have received. Let me ask, how do you know that you're a Christian? That's a, that's a pretty good question, right? That's a, a pretty important question. How is it that you know that the life you are living today is a genuinely Christian life? Well, John says in verse 13 that the answer to that question has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is God's great gift to his people. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God the Father and God the Son did exactly what they promised they would do. They poured out the gift of God the Holy Spirit. And here in this text, John is reminding us of why the Holy Spirit is such a tremendous gift. It's because through the Spirit, we know that God is our God and we are His people. We are people of His presence. He is with us. But not only is God with us, he's actually taken up residence within us. That's what's so special about the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's because through him, we, the people of God, the church, we are the dwelling place of God. This is where Christian assurance comes from. To answer the question I asked a few seconds ago, we know that we are Christians because we know that we are a temple inhabited by the Spirit of the Lord. And this Spirit, who has come to live within us, who is the gift of the Father and the Son, this Spirit is the Spirit of truth. That's what Jesus says. He says it in the Gospel of John. Listen, listen to his words. Jesus told his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus continues. He says, he, the spirit of truth, will glorify me, for he will take what belongs to me and my father, and he will declare it to you. This is why 
after reminding us of what we've received in verse 13, John says in verse 14 that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Friends, this is how the Spirit glorifies Jesus. He reveals to us that Jesus is no ordinary man. No, through the Spirit, we come to see who Jesus really is. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that the ultimate purpose of the Christian life is for us to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we do this, as we behold this glory, we are being transformed from one degree of that glory to the next. And Paul says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is why sinners like you and me, like John who is writing this letter, the reason that any of us can possibly lay hold of the truth about Jesus is because of what we've received. We have received the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we are hopelessly and helplessly blinded by our sinful nature. The God of this world would have kept us from seeing the light of God's glory in Jesus Christ. But as it stands, praise God, we have received the Spirit of truth. And so we have eyes to see the glory of Jesus, to see that glory as of the only Son from the Father who is full of grace and truth. That's the first reality we find in this text. Here's the second. It's what we confess. So we've looked at what we've received. Now we're looking at what we confess. So what has been revealed to us by the Spirit, we now gladly confess with our lips. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's our confession. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, it tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord and mean it from the bottom of their heart except in the Holy Spirit. A little while back, my wife Erin and I finished a show that we really enjoyed. It was a show called Jury Duty. Maybe you've heard of this show. I get the feeling that some of you have. The reason we enjoyed this show so much, as those of you who have seen it will well know, the reason we enjoyed it is because the show had a really fun, interesting premise. It centers on a guy who is called in for jury duty, hence the name of the show. But the catch is that the whole thing is staged and he doesn't know it. He doesn't know that all the people around him are actors. He doesn't know that the whole situation is carefully premeditated. He doesn't know that, that everything that happens is being recorded by hidden cameras. He's totally clueless about all of it. Well, Sometimes when you read the Gospels in the New Testament, you get the feeling that things are a lot like on that show but just in the reverse. On jury duty, one guy is clueless and everyone, know, everyone else knows what's really going on. But in the Gospels, there's one guy who knows what's really going on and everybody else is clueless. But in the Gospel of Matthew, there's like this rare moment of clarity. 
There's this rare moment of lucidity. It happens in verse 13, where Jesus knows that everyone's talking about him. He is the talk of the town. And so he asks his disciples, hey, what are people saying about me? What kinds of things are you hearing? And his disciples answer by just talking about some of the standard fare of what's out there. They say, well, some are, 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 you know, they're of the mind that you're John the Baptist. Some think that you're like the reincarnation of Elijah. Some think that, that you're a prophet. And so Jesus, as he is often known to do, he turns the question on his disciples and he says, well, who do you say that I am? What do you think? And Peter, for once in his life, gets something right. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus gets really excited about this. He says to Peter, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven has, has revealed it to you. And so upon this confession that you have made, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, what John is telling us in our passage for today is that whoever confesses what Peter confessed, God abides in him. God abides in him. Just think of what that means. Think of how this changes the way that we see the act, the, the, the practice of confessing our faith together. Like moments ago, we said the Nicene Creed and we declared our belief in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Father's eternally begotten Son, who is light from light, true God from true God. He's the only Savior of the world. He came down from heaven for our salvation. He was born of a virgin. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He was buried in a tomb. But three days later, the stone was rolled away and the grave could not contain Jesus. So he emerged triumphantly from that tomb. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father on high from whence he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. He will reign forever and ever. Do you know what's happening? When that confession leaves our mouths, John does. He knows exactly what's happening. And his voice is alive and well in this text to remind us of what the nature of our confession really is. And hear me. What it is, is it's a means by which we enjoy communion with the triune God. So when we make time for the Nicene Creed in our worship services, when we confess the sound doctrine that God has handed down to, to us through his word and his church, it is not merely our mental, cognitive, intellectual assent to a set of propositions. It is not some cold, lifeless exercise where we're mindlessly going through the motions. No, it's not that at all. What we're doing when we confess our faith is we are confessing a living faith. We are confessing a vibrant faith, a faith that has utterly transformed us from the inside out. 
And we confess it because the burning desire of our regenerate hearts is to know one thing and one thing only. Here's our third reality. It's what we know and believe. So we've looked at what we've received. We've looked at what we confess. Now we're looking at what we know and believe. John says that whoever confesses what is true about Jesus has communion with God. But then just notice what he says next. Look at the result of our confession. Look at what it produces in our lives. John says, so we have, those three words are very important. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. John says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides him. Finally, here in verse 16, we've arrived at the ultimate reason why sound doctrine matters so much. There might be countless ancillary reasons why we prioritize what we believe. We even listed some of these at the beginning of the message. But there can only be one reason at the top of that list. And that reason is this. Divine love. Why do we prioritize what we believe? Just those two words. Divine love. John draws a direct line between divine truth and divine love. Between our doctrine and our knowledge, our personal experiential knowledge of God's love. What we as the people of God confess, if it is indeed a true confession, it actually facilitates our participation in the God who is love. Of course, this doesn't mean that everyone who dots their theological I's and crosses their doctrinal T's will automatically, by default, have their finger on the pulse of divine love. You know, I think we've all seen it, that it's true at times that some of the most theologically knowledgeable people can also be some of the most unloving people. But that's a distortion. That's not the genuine artifact. That's not the real deal, because doctrine minus love is math that doesn't add up. But I think this works the other way, too. It goes in the other direction. Love minus doctrine doesn't quite add up either. Any claim we make about Christian love, any claim that we make about the love of God requires sound, biblical, orthodox, doctrinal content. Otherwise, we are in danger of completely inverting what John says here in this text. Without sound doctrine, God is love becomes love is God. If you want an example of this, look no further than the Sparkle Creed. If you've not heard of this, the Sparkle Creed is a parody of the Apostles' Creed written in honor of Pride Month. Here's how some of it goes. The Sparkle Creed states, I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads. 
and who saw everyone as a sibling child of God. Now it goes on like that for a few more lines, but just listen to how it concludes. Here's the final line of the Sparkle Creed. It says, I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. Friends, that's what happens when you try to define love apart from sound doctrine. Not only do you become incoherent, you also subvert Orthodox Christianity to become a twisted parody of itself. If love wedded to sound doctrine is participation in the divine, then any attempt at love divorced from sound doctrine is participation in the demonic. And John actually has a name for this in his letters. He calls it the Antichrist. Friends, I know this runs against the grain of everything the world is telling us. This runs against every cultural message you hear on a day-to-day basis. I love the Beatles and everything, but love is not all that we need. Now, what we need is for Christian doctrine to define love for us in terms of who God is, what he has done, and who he calls us to be. Just think for a moment about the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God. We believe in a God who is immovable and unchanging, infinite and eternal, self-sufficient and all-powerful. And the word of God shows us again and again that the more we come to understand these things about him, the more we will love him. The book of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that to, ser- to, to know God truly is to search out the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. We're talking about the limitless, infinite dimensions of divine love. And Paul says that we search this out so that we may be filled with all the fullness of him. That's the invitation that is being extended to us in the doctrine of God. It is a glorious, glorious invitation. What about the doctrine of man? When we begin to grasp that each human being we meet is made in the image of God, that makes us want to love our neighbors as ourselves. It motivates us to treat people well. Because every person on the face of this earth matters to God. Then there's the doctrine of divine providence. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that this doctrine, the doctrine of providence, teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for them. Jesus says, you know that person that you regard as your enemy? You know that person that you're tempted to hate? Don't hate them. Don't regard them as your enemy. Instead, love them and pray for them. Because listen, by the the providence of your God, he sends rain on that person just like he sends rain on you. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul uses the doctrine of the cross of Christ to teach husbands to love their wives. He says, love your wife, husband." As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Friends, this is what sound doctrine does. It teaches us to give and to receive, to know and to believe, to embrace and to extend to others the love that God has for us. We love, friends, because God first loved us. This goes to the very heart of the gospel that Emmaus declares and displays. The good news of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us in that Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, while we were still far off from him, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, dead in the trespasses in which we once walked, God did the unthinkable. He reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. Friends, there is no greater love than the love revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus. So for this reason, I have just one point of application for you today. Really, it's more of an announcement. As a way of practicing what we've been talking about this morning, I want to announce on behalf of the elders of Emmaus that we have been working on a new confession of faith for Emmaus. If what we've been talking about today is true, if as a church we are called to prioritize sound doctrine, then the elders believe it's fitting for Emmaus to have the best confession of faith that we can possibly have. So we've been putting together a document that pinpoints the doctrines that are distinctive to Emmaus. This document is intended to replace the statement of faith we currently have. So if you're a covenant member of Emmaus, the the statement of faith we have now is the statement that you affirmed when you joined the church. But in the coming months, we're going to ask you to affirm this new confession. Now, I just want to be clear. This is not because Emmaus is moving in some new theological direction. The elders of Emmaus are not going to introduce anything to you that has not been taught from the pulpit at Emmaus since the very beginning of the church. Instead, the reason we believe it's time for a new confession of faith is because we've become convinced that our current doctrinal statement does not say all that it should say. God has been impressing upon us that we need something more comprehensive, something that guards and guides the membership of our church with clearer doctrinal parameters. Listen, if Emmaus is going to be a church that prioritizes sound doctrine, then we need a confession of faith that reflects that. So to that end, I just want to briefly do two things, and then we'll receive communion. First thing I want to do is I want to share with you some details, a timeline of sorts, for how the process of transitioning to this new confession will look. And the second thing I want to do is I want to conclude with some of the ways that your elders are praying that this new confession of faith will shape Emmaus for the better. So let's do the first thing. Let's talk timeline. Over the next several months, we'll be releasing the new confession of faith in three phases. I think we have a, yeah, a slide that'll kind of give you a visual of this. We'll release it in, in three phases. The way we'll do this is before 
we release each phase of the confession, we'll take some time to preach through it on Sunday mornings. We didn't just want to like push a confession on you and say, okay, go read this. Now let's vote on it. But instead, what we really wanted was we wanted the congregation to be shepherded and fed by the elders and pastors of this church throughout the whole process. So before you read the statement, before you can set eyes on it, you will hear it preached. Phase one of this will begin in September, phase two in December, and phase three in April of next year. And in between each of these phases, we'll break it up with, you know, more of the normal diet of our preaching. We'll return to just walking through a book or a part of a book like we usually do. Then after phase three, we'll have a congregational vote and we'll announce the results of the vote at our second quarter members meeting. Okay, if you have any questions about this or if you're wanting to talk about anything with the elders, you can reach out to us. Our email is right there, elders at EmmausKC.com. But as you think about this process, I want to invite you to consider some of the ways that this confession of faith will shape us as a church to know and to believe God's love for us. As we've seen in 1 John chapter 4 this morning, that's the whole point. That's the whole reason for this. The whole reason is for every person who belongs to this church, for every person who walks in our doors on a Sunday morning, for every person who comes into contact with Emmaus, we want all of them to know and to believe what we say at the end of every worship service. That in the gospel, Jesus Christ, God offers to love us with an everlasting love. So how will this confession of faith help us to come to that realization more fully? How will it shape us in the knowledge of that? Well, let me quickly list five ways. I'll be very quick with these. Number one, it'll shape our contemplation of God. Contemplation is the pursuit of something for its own sake. That's the definition. We pursue the knowledge of God because God in and of himself is worthy of our pursuit. Nothing is more important than knowing God. This is why we were created. It's why we were redeemed. David shows us this in Psalm 27 when he says, the one thing I want the one thing I am seeking after is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Number two, this confession will shape our communion with God. This is what we've seen today in 1 John, that sound doctrine is a means by which we abide in and commune with the God who is love. Our communion with God is directly related to our confession of God. Number three, it will shape our understanding of the gospel. You've been reminded today that the mission of Emmaus Church centers on the good news about Jesus. But that mission centers on 
theology. It depends on theology. If we don't know who God is, if we don't have sound doctrine to shape our understanding of him, then we put ourselves at risk of misunderstanding what he's done for us in the gospel. Number four, it will shape our liturgy for gathered worship. Sound doctrine is the bedrock of true worship. Remember what Jesus taught us. He taught us to worship in spirit and in truth. So this new confession of faith will help us to better apply truth to our worship so that the spirit of our worship brings honor and glory to the object of our worship. And finally, number five, this confession will shape our culture of disciples. Apart from the knowledge of God, we cannot faithfully lead each other and encourage each other to love and follow Jesus. Over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about community and commission. But in order for us to know how we're supposed to live as a community of disciples, and in order for us to know how we're supposed to make disciples of all nations, we need sound doctrine. Community and commission are formed by the confession of our creed. This is something that John is very much driving at in his letter. He tells us that if you don't treat others with love, if you don't love the brethren, if you don't love the church, if you don't love the world as God has loved the world, then you don't know the first thing about his love. So what our confession of faith will do is it will allow us to be rightly formed in the knowledge of God so that that knowledge can be applied to our ministries, to our relationships here in the church, and to our mission in the world around us. You see, friends, at Emmaus, theology is not just some box that we check off and leave behind as we engage in community and commission. No, theology is the tapestry for everything we do as a church. Sound doctrine is key for the Christian life because through it, God is renewing our mind. He is stirring our affection and he's refining our knowledge of his love so that we can reflect that love to the world around us. And so we prioritize what we believe. In fact, today as we come to the Lord's table, we get to feast on this. The creed that left our mouths earlier in the service now enters our mouths through the bread and the cup. The sacrament of communion is gospel doctrine being made seeable, touchable, and tasteable. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus instituted this meal as a means by which his substitutionary death can nourish our souls as we abide in the love of the triune God. Of course, this meal is a Christian meal. It's a Christian meal. So if you're not a Christian and you're here today, first let me say, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you have come to hear us and see us declare and display the gospel. But if you would, we want to respectfully ask you, if you're not a Christian, please abstain from coming to this table. We won't point you out or embarrass you or make a thing of it. We just want to make sure that this meal stays a Christian meal. So instead of coming to the table of Christ, 
We want to plead with you, if you're not a Christian, to come to the Christ of the table. What you will observe as we take this meal together is that Jesus died on the cross for unworthy sinners like me. And he is offering his love today to sinners who will place their faith in him. So turn away from your sins. Put your trust in his name and confess what you have heard us confess today, that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the savior of the world. For those of us who will come, We'll do that in just a moment by coming down the, the aisle on this side of the room. We'll begin in the front row and we'll move to the back of the room. You'll come around this, this aisle, around the front, and you can find the elements at the table here. Then you can take them with you back to your seat and observe the Lord's Supper. Before we do that, let me pray for us. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, we thank you that you have given us of your spirit You've redeemed us through your son and you've called us by name to know and believe your love. Give us grace, Lord, to confess what is true of you and only what is true. Rescue us from the world, the flesh and the devil who conspire to warp and corrupt our confession. Jesus, I pray that in everything we do, truth and love would be wedded together so that we may abide in you and show the world that we truly are your disciples. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we pray these things by the power of your spirit who lives within us and in the authority of your name today. Amen. Church, come to the feast. Your Jesus is waiting for you.